We're continuing our series on the book of Philippians, so do keep the Bible open in front of you uh, in just a few moments. Uh, I'm well, no, in about 15 minutes. I'm going to invite uh, Mel and Santina to join me up here. We're going to spend the first 15 minutes looking in depth at the text itself, and then Mel and Santina are going to work with us to look at how that really applies. What will this look like day to day? So that's where we're going in our, our view tonight of Philippians 3, verses uh, 1 to 16. And as we dive straight into the text, if you have a look there at verse 1, you can see that we begin with the word further. And it's translating a word that actually means the others, that is, the remaining things. Uh, In other words, Paul's saying, look, I've encouraged you guys to live worthy of the gospel in all of your relationships, uh, as modeled by Jesus. We saw that in chapter 2, right? Even as modeled by Timothy and Epaphroditus, we saw that last week. So since I've done that, now, says Paul, I want to talk about some further matters. And he begins this talk of further matters with, in fact, a very stern warning. Uh, So there in verse 1, Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard for you. Watch out. For those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. This warning is actually much sterner than it might first appear. The warning is not like that sign on the gabers on the neighbor's side gate you know the one that says beware of the dog and you know behind the gate there's a you know overly friendly labrador or a, you know maybe a grumpy german shepherd or something that's not the kind of warning this is the word dogs here is a swear word it's an insult and paul is directing that insult at the false teachers in philippi who are demanding that in order to be a christian you must first become a proper Jew. You must stop being Gentiles and get circumcised and then do everything that circumcision promises. That is, that you will fully obey the law of Moses. That's what circumcision means. It says, I am promising, I am committing myself to do everything that the law of Moses says. And then when you're fully obeying all of those laws about sacrificing and tithing and food and purity, then you can have your Jesus bit too. You can add him into the mix, as it were. Straight away you can see why Paul is so uptight. This is a very angry piece of writing that we're reading tonight. Paul is so uptight because of the distortion of the gospel. Hang on a minute, if it's all about circumcision it's all about obeying the law that means that i kind of stand before god on the basis of how good i am how well can i live up to all of those requirements it's all about me and what i can do that's why paul is so feisty here in this bit of writing that we're reading and so over and against that distortion verse 3 if you have a look at it paul declares that those who trust in jesus christ actually possess the reality, the the fulfillment, the substance anticipated by the Old Testament. That is, they truly worship God by the Holy Spirit with a renewed heart. Okay, The symbols and the signposts like circumcision have been replaced by the reality that they foreshadowed. Now, of course, having made such a big assertion, Paul's got to back it up. 
And that's what he does in verses 4 through 11. He actually puts forward his argument as to why the law, even at its best, fails compared with knowing Christ. When it comes to standing before God, Paul wants to say the law fails compared with how great it is to come before God knowing Christ. And what Paul does here is he sets up a kind of a a test case and he puts himself as the test case and he says, look, if anyone could be kind of confident about standing before God on the basis of the law, I'm your man. So verses 4 through 6, Paul sort of starts boasting about how great he would look if the law was the basis upon which he stood before God. So I'm at verse 4. Have a look at it with me. Paul says, I myself have reason for such confidence in the law, that is. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, here we go with the boast. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. That's about as good as it gets when it comes to you know righteous law obedience, working hard at it, Pharisees. They've got a lot. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. In short, if God's approval could be won by doing the right things, living up to the law of Moses, Paul said, he could tick all the boxes. I've got this. But here comes Paul's argument. He says, what if with all of this obedience and status and pedigree and privilege, what if that is absolutely no grounds at all for confidence when you come before God? And if Paul can't be confident coming before God on the basis of the law, what about people like us, ordinary everyday people? Not a chance. And so this is the argument that Paul wants to make. He wants to compare coming before God on the basis of the law, which he thinks he could do pretty good at if tried, or coming before God on the basis of Jesus Christ. And so he's going to compare those two options. And uh, to help us really understand the way that Paul is arguing here, I want to um, show you how the comparisons game works. Okay, So um, let's just try this sort of uh, mental uh, exercise. Imagine that you've got to get from Sydney to Brisbane. Okay, That's, that's the challenge, get from Sydney to Brisbane. And uh, I'm going to give you two options as to how you might like to get there. right? And you get to choose which option you would like. So here we go. So uh, option one is that very attractive Datsun 120Y. It's a very nice mustard color. And it looks like it might make it. So that's option one, traveling from Sydney to Brisbane. Option two is a pair of roller skates. Mm, Which one are you going to go with? I think I'm in the Datsun at this moment. Uh, My roller skating is not good, and that's a very long way. So there's a comparison. Little yellow car, roller skates. Let's change the comparison now. What if instead of roller skates, I offer you a Morris Minor? I think I'm still in the Datsun. Morris doesn't look great. Um, We could change it up again, though. I could offer you, instead of the Morris, I could offer you a Leyland P76. This is Australia's worst ever car. (laughs) There are people who are going, no. So I think I'm still in the Datsun at this point, right? But who knows? Um, We could change it up again. 
Instead of the Leyland P76, I'm offering you a trusty Holden Commodore. Ooh, I think I'm about to change at this point. I think, I think the Commodore's probably going to get me there some more, maybe. I don't know. But we could change it again, okay? What if the comparison was the Datsun versus you could have a Ferrari? Oh, there's a lot of people going, yeah, okay, I'll take that. I'll take option two. Thank you very much. And for good measure, you know, let's not have a Ferrari. You could just have a private jet. <laughs> How do you want to get to Brisbane? The Datsun started off looking pretty good, but as the comparison worked its way through, I'm going with a private jet. And it really depends on what you're comparing it with. Paul's argument sounds a little bit like this. Let's begin with the law. That sounds like it might be an okay way to stand before God under the basis of the law. But in fact, if we compare it with Jesus Christ, there's no chance. That's the way that Paul's argument works. Let's actually look now at the substance of it because Paul's not actually talking about getting to Brisbane at all. He's talking about how we stand before God. I'm at verse 7 now. But whatever were gains to me, that is, all of the gains of Paul's righteous credentials and his achievements under the law, so whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Let's have a look at this comparison now that Paul sets before us. There are two sides. The thing that Paul is comparing is what, are the base, what is the basis upon which you stand before God? What is the thing that you're going to boast of? What is it in which you rejoice? Where is your confidence as you stand before God? And here are the two options, two very different options. The first option that Paul has been speaking about already is, is coming before God on the basis of the law. And how obedient you are to the law of Moses. How much zeal you've got in pursuing that. Have you or have you not been circumcised? All those sorts of things. That's one way that you might want to stand before God. The alternative, says Paul, is that you may stand before God in the Lord Jesus. There are two basic options. Uh, Paul, remember, has already said in verse 6, you know what, if it comes to righteousness based upon the law of Moses, I've got it down. I would be declared faultless. And so Paul, you would think, would say, hey, here's a win. Go with the law because it's, you know, looks pretty good. I could cover all the bases. And therefore, the Jesus side is the loss. But something really significant happens in this part of the Bible in verse 8. Actually, it's verse 7. He turns it all around and he says, you know what? All of those things that I used to think were a win actually are a dead loss by comparison with everything that knowing the Lord Jesus Christ is. The turning point of this passage is in verse 8 where we see Paul says, I know Christ. That changes the game. 
uh, as opposed to having no knowledge of Christ or having no Jesus. Verse 8, Paul says, I've lost everything. I've lost all of those other things. Now, of course, by comparison, you could say, well, you could keep all those other things. You could keep your spiritual pride of all of it, how religious you are. You could do that. Paul says, verse 9, you know what? I have a righteousness that is given from God on the basis of faith. I want to be found in Christ. That is, on the last day when I stand before God, I want to be found in the Lord Jesus. The option, the other option, would be being found under the law. And actually, I would be condemned by the Lord, by the law, because I didn't measure up. It only looked like I measured up in the world's eyes. In reality, as I stood before God, I was condemned by it. So there's this incredible comparison that Paul draws. And the turning point is in verse 8 there, where he talks about knowing Christ. And if the whole thing turns on knowing Christ, what I'd like to do is just take a few more moments to dive a little deeper into this idea of what does Paul mean when he talks about knowing Christ there in verse 8. What is so great about knowing Christ that Paul would lose everything for the sake of knowing Christ? Now, if you're a regular here at St. Andrews, uh, you will know that Paul would be, uh, in his thinking, a Hebraic thinker. He would think about the Hebrew word for knowing, which is Yoda. Or Yoda, actually. Okay, not the little green guy on Star Wars, uh, although his name does mean wisdom. But we have all been taught that Yoda is the Word, the Hebrew word for knowing or wisdom. And to know someone in Hebrew thought is not really to kind of possess data about them. You know, you kind of looked up Wikipedia and you know stuff about them. That is not knowing them at all. Knowing someone means that there is a relationship involved here. It's a relational idea to know someone. You are kind of intimately acquainted with them that person or the thing, whatever it is, there's an experience there, there's an engagement there, there is a mutuality. Um, I love the way Bass plays the saxophone when he's up here. Do you guys watch Sorry to do this to you, Bass. I love it when you play, man. Um, we could say Bass knows saxophone, right? And by that we don't mean he could just show us where the notes are on it, right, and, and you know, talk about the thing. What we mean is that when he plays that, there is something amazing happening. Music is coming out. There's a, there's a kind of like, they're, they're like joined, you know, like they bass nose, saxophone. I love that. That's the kind of relational aspect uh, that we're getting in our head around when it comes to knowing God. In the same way, that word Yoda, to know, gets used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, in the good old King James. It says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she became pregnant. Okay, so you see how that word knows means an intimate knowing. Another aspect of knowing is not just intimacy, it's not just relationship, but it's also the idea of obedience. Okay, in our culture, we might say that, you know, a lawyer knows the law. They know all about it. They know, like you know, the clauses and the subclauses, and and you know, they can point you in the book where to, where the, where the law is, right? That's not the way a Hebrew thinker thinks about the law. They would say, 
To know the law is to obey the law. If you know law, you live it. That's the way they think. So you can see all of the different aspects and dimensions of this idea to know. And here's our point. When we get to verse 8 and Paul says, I know Jesus Christ, my Lord. He means so much more than just, you know, I know about Jesus. I know the stuff he did. I know the kind of the message of the gospel. Yes, he does know those things. But what he means here is so much more. There is a relationship with Jesus Christ that he has. There is a sharing. There is an engagement, a mutuality. To know Christ is actually to gain Christ. Do you see that in the text where there's that idea of knowing Christ? And parallel to it, it says he gains Christ. Ultimately, what Paul means is that knowing Christ means that he shares in all that Christ has done for him. He shares in an incredible union with Christ. I tell you all of that to make sense of verse 10. Have a look at verse 10 and 11, actually. This is, really, this is the key point that Paul has been building up to. He says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Christ ultimately means sharing in the power of his resurrection. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in the believer. Because Christ has been resurrected, those who know him will also be resurrected. In the same way, using this same word to know... Knowing Christ means that you will participate or share in his sufferings. Maybe persecution. Maybe some kind of humiliation or or dishonor. Whatever that pattern of Jesus' suffering that we've seen in the book of Philippians already, think maybe back to chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Whatever that pattern of suffering that Christ has endured, that's also going to be a pattern for the life of the believer, the one who shares in Christ. Following the same logic, as Christ died, so will the person who knows him. We will become like him in his death, unless, of course, he comes back first. We may not be crucified in the way that he was, but we will indeed enter death. And as Paul says, so in this way, we'll attain to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so knowing Christ is all about this relationship with him. And it involves so much more than just knowing some data, having read the Jesus Wikipedia page. Through this process, we see that knowing Christ is way better by comparison to this living under the law idea. There's one last thing now, as we've worked our way through the text so far. Up to verse 11, do you see that word somehow in there? It kind of sounds a bit funny. We've talked about knowing Christ and about being united with him in his suffering and in his death, and then you get to verse 11, and somehow attaining to the resurrection. What's that about? There's a thing happening here in the Greek, which is kind of good to know. That little somehow word is actually representing a conditional conjunction which assumes the positive. So um, we might say, um, 
If such and such is true, and you know it's true, if this is true, then that will follow. So we could say, you know, if the Pope is Catholic, or if the sky is blue, or if the river runs to the sea, then this will surely take place. And what we have here in the text with a somehow there is the this will surely happen. That is, because we are united with Christ in his suffering, in his death, we will certainly also be united with him. We don't know exactly how, but we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. So what we've tried to do in these few moments tonight is grasp a little more of what Paul means when he says, knowing Christ is so great, gaining Christ. We see how much greater that reality is than depending upon how good I am or how well I can live up to the requirements of the Old Testament law. The comparison, well, it's kind of no comparison at all. Knowing in Christ means that we share, knowing Christ means that we share in all of this. And it's this same idea of knowing Christ, being united with him, having such a relationship with him, that underpins a pretty weird shift into verse 12 and uh, following all the way to verse 16. You see, Paul has just been declaring how Christ has done everything to make us right with God. And it sounds like, wow, that's so good. All I need to do now is kind of kick back in my banana lounge with a little drink with a little umbrella in the top and wait till Jesus comes. How good. But you don't see that happening at all. What Paul says now is, I press on now. I'm getting really active because I know Christ. That's in the background. His knowing, his relationship with Christ drives his action or his activism. Let's um, look at verse 12. I'll start reading it and you can see how this unfolds. Okay. So Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all of this, this righteousness uh, given by God based on faith. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Because Paul knows Christ, he has this dynamic relationship with him because of that now he's pushing on and he pushes on with great energy Uh, do you see in verse 12 he uses that word i press on and you see it again in verse 14 i press on do you know that's exactly the same word he used back in verse 6 when he said i persecuted the church i chased down those christians wherever they were i sought them out and i grabbed them and chucked them in jail or you know, had him killed. That's the word persecute, right? It's exactly the same word as press on. I chase after Christ in order to grab him. It's a, it's a pretty stirring kind of action that Paul is taking here. It's not random, though. Paul's energy in pressing on to follow Christ is focused. It's actually targeted on the prize that God has waiting for each Christian in heaven. Do you know what prize God has awaiting you in heaven? He wants to share his glory with you. All that Jesus is, is ours. And it's waiting. 
And Paul says, I'm pressing on, headed for that goal. With all of the energy that I once used to persecute the church, that same energy is focused now on pressing on in my relationship, in my knowing of Jesus Christ. And that's the mindset that a mature Christian is going to have. That's what Paul says. You see that in verses 15 and 16? You may not be up to that point yet. You know, that point where you say, do you know what, I can see all of this fine stuff and recognize it as garbage. I see all these things and I'm happy to lose them because of the surpassing worth, the greatness of knowing Christ. Paul says, verses 15 and 16, that's how a mature Christian thinks. You want to work toward that. And that's his encouragement to us at the end of this passage. I'm going to pray for us now. We've done a great deep dive into the text itself. We want to start to think now about, okay, how do I live this? What will it look like for me day by day? And uh, Mel and Santino are going to help me with that. But let's pray first. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been shown who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We have understood the news about his death and resurrection and you have been so kind as to give us faith to believe it that we can actually enter into this relationship, this friendship with Jesus Christ that we would know him. Our prayer tonight, Lord, is that we would go deeper in our knowledge of Christ, that we would understand and realise all that it entails and so, given such assurance and such hope, we might truly press on to the goal, which is the prize that awaits us in your presence. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mel and Santino have had uh, a week to uh, soak themselves in this passage, think about it, reflect on what it might mean for them. Um, this is completely unrehearsed, not staged. Uh, but uh, Mel, can we start with you? I'm interested in yeah. your thoughts on uh, how this passage shapes you and applies to your life. Yeah, um, I was struck most of all by Paul's confidence that he could have in things other than Christ and his challenge uh, to move his confidence away from that. And I, I think I was particularly struck because I think in our area and with our lifestyle... We, too, have a lot that we could place our confidence in, in things of the flesh, things of the world, things of material basis. Um, and I think perhaps those things are a lot more sneaky and a lot more dangerous than the law was for Israelites. And so I was quite struck by what it would mean to consider all of those things that we could put our confidence in, a great house, a great job, a great relationship, a wonderful family, you know, a, a comfortable, beautiful life. Those things that we could very easily uphold as important beyond all else, we're actually called to consider as garbage, as a loss compared to knowing Christ. And I considered this week how my life especially, and in my role working with our kids of this church, how am I showing them in everything that I do that those things are a loss by comparison? That they're good things given by God, but they're not the most important things. 
Um, I think it's something like 80% of what we say to people isn't with our words. It's with yeah. non-verbal communication, um, which is shocking to me. <laughs> but I wonder what, what we are actually communicating to our children about what is important in our lives. What is the most important thing? Is it work? Is it family? Is it the house and the lifestyle? Is it something else? Or is it Christ? Is that the thing that we're showing them to be the only thing that we place our confidence in? Um, I was on a camp last week called Leaders in Training, and it's a youth works camp for high schoolers who want to be trained in leadership. Um, And it's skills-based. You know, they learn kids' ministry. They learn how to read a story to a group of children, how to run a Bible study, how to write a talk, things like this. Amazing camp. If you have teenagers, contact me. That's a free plug, right? Yeah. (laughs) Next year. Um, But the last talk of this camp was on the story of Mary and Martha, where Jesus comes to their house and Martha is busying herself, serving food for the many people she's hosting and doing wonderful good service, doing good things. And she's frustrated because Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet, listening, quietly learning. And she's frustrated. And I always identify with Martha. I'm such a Martha. Um, But the preacher said, Jesus turns to Martha when she calls him to rebuke Mary. And he says, no. He says, there are many things that are important, but only one thing that is needed. And I just love that picture. And I think that's what Paul is telling us. All he wants is to know Christ better. And that's all that Mary wants. She wants to sit at his feet and know him better today than she did yesterday, listen to him more tomorrow than she did today. Uh, And so I think I've been really struck by what it would mean to just want to know Christ. And I wondered what people see that I want in life. Do they see that I want a a wonderful ministry, a God-glorifying ministry? That is a good thing. Do they see that I want to live in a happy, healthy, wonderful place and house with kind housemates. That's a good thing, I think. Um, Do they see that I want to be a good friend? All good things. But what I've been struck by is none of those things are the most important thing. None of those things are the necessary thing. The thing that I've taken away is that Paul just wants to know Christ. Uh, And so that's really challenged me this week. I'm going to go on the bat for Martha for just a bit. (laughs) Yes. Because being active doesn't exclude you from knowing Christ. No, not at all. Um, you can know God through your service. So this, but I think the thing that was going on there was that actually Martha wasn't thinking about getting no. to know God at all. Her mind was like, you know, chips and potatoes. Yes, or absolutely. It was. And she's not too busy, but she's distracted. Yeah, totally. Yeah, she's not focusing on the main thing while she's doing good service. Absolutely. Right. Thank you. Santino, you've been thinking about this as well. Yes. Um, I guess having come from a Roman Catholic background, there were some elements that jumped out at me uh, when I was reading the passage uh, that may apply to others who may have come from um, a Roman Catholic or some sort of other denomination where there's a little bit more of a focus on works and legalism. But I guess the first thing that struck me was that the gospel untainted is absolutely vital. And we, we often um, make allowances or think that it's okay to, you know, maybe just steer a little bit this way or steer a little bit that way because it's still got the same message but with a little bit of an add-on or a little bit of a subtraction. And the the language that Paul uses for these Judaizers who are sort of still wanting to hang on to the old legalism is, uh, Stu Stu did mention it to me just in passing during the week, was was, was pretty sort of, I think you used the word M.A., you know, he's not mucking around when he calls these uh, people dogs, you know. Um, And so sometimes that's become a little bit of a challenge for me when interacting with... um, 
family and friends who are from the Roman Catholic background because you, you find yourself not wanting to offend and not wanting to um, sort of break the relationship that you have with them. And so, and in fact, it was, it was interesting that I actually had that opportunity this week. I was um, doing some painting and I had someone helping me um, who was uh, from a Roman Catholic background and very interested in, you know, why this Italian fellow, this fellow himself was Italian, why this Italian fellow would be working at an Anglican church. You know, he <laughs> was really doing his head in a little bit. And so as we're having, you know, the, the conversation as we were brushing away and, and rollering away, um, I was trying to explain to him that, yes, there's some wonderful, I mean, let me absolutely be clear, there are Christians within the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not here to sort of say that that is not the case, but having grown up until I was 18 years of age um, in the Roman Catholic faith, the, the clarity of the gospel and the fact that it's by faith that I am saved, not by works, was just buried somewhere in there. It wasn't really clear. And, uh, and Paul here is, is just making it clear that it's by mm. faith that we are saved. But in this interaction I was having with this painter, I was just sort of being a little bit too mild, I think, you know. Right. Um, so maybe that's a challenge for me that uh, be a little bit bold and, and without breaking the relationship with someone, but you know, make it make it absolutely clear. I guess one other aspect that um, I also love about this passage, and it sort of feeds into this area where Paul talks about how he could boast because you know he was such a wonderful Jew himself, and, and uh, you know we know that through many of the different writings. But um, the, the thing about the gospel, once you come to understand that we are all sinners, and the fact that we all come here on a Sunday is it's a leveler. There is no person here who's better than another person because the reason why we are here is because we know that we are sinners and we know that it's by faith that we are saved. So, you know, whether speaking, hearing of, of Mel's comments about the different things that we can put our trust in or our, our focus, that, ain't, that doesn't count for anything, you know, and so it's just wonderful to be reminded of that. Mm. Um, and then lastly, and, and you did point this out, Stu, as you were preaching, that uh, verse 10, which talks about uh, it not just being, uh, you know, a roller coaster, sorry, not just being a sort of a a simple ride now that, you know, by faith we are saved and we're not going to have difficulties, we're not going to have troubles, there is still an element that we do need to be doing things by the virtue of we have a faith. But the inspiration from that doesn't come from legalism. The inspiration comes from understanding who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And, for us, and that completely changes the ballgame. It does, doesn't it? It's yeah. a real game changer. Thank you. Thanks for your insights. Um, we might invite... Um, yeah, Tom, to do his thing with the microphone. Yeah, so you've heard a lot of uh, exciting things, interesting things. So if you've got some questions, please feel free to put up your hand and I'll pass you your microphone. Uh, my question, I fully agree that uh, we all should focus on Christ and developing intimacy with Christ that's given. Um, while there was a lot of discussions about uh, rejecting the legalism of Moses and all that, I find myself having gone through different kind of churches, contemplating about this, uh, the new legalism that is being debated on, the mode of baptism, complementary practice or equalitarian practice, so on and so forth. So have the church actually unconsciously or subconsciously, without even aware of it, putting in a new legalistic approach to how we should follow Christ. Thank you. I, I think that's a, a, a great um, question which highlights the f kind of the nature of human beings that have fallen. We substitute one legalism for another one very quickly. And uh, we might not all be tempted to rush off and get circumcised tomorrow, but you know what? We are tempted to elevate ourselves on the basis of our own competence or... 
um, theological position for all sorts of reasons. And so I think your question really calls each of us to actually look at our own hearts and say, on what basis do I think I stand before God? Uh, to keep coming back to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, not whether my liturgy is good or whether my singing is awesome, or, or you know, insert there whatever you will, it's Christ alone. And so I, I thank you for your question, and, and it's really a great comment. We can so readily swap in a new legalism that was just different to the last one that we had and think that we're fine. So let's look at our own hearts in that. Thank you. Uh, I love this because um, here we've got Paul and he's um, a Hebrew, uh, he's um, persecuted church in his past and he, you know, put people in jail and he... But what moves me is that he can forget all that and with the spirit he can move forward. And I think that's the what I get out of this. Yeah, that's a great uh, comment, Nick, from the point of view that um, it isn't uncommon when speaking to people who are examining the faith or trying to get to a point where they have a confidence that they have a faith, that they, they're often shackled by things that they know in the past that you know, may not have been the way um, anyone would have want, wanted one to act or, or behave. And yet, uh, Nick, your comment that Paul is able to have released himself from that um, through his understanding of the gospel is, is really important, yeah. Okay, and we have one last one, and it's from the phone. It says, can you give an example of when you have experienced the power of Jesus' resurrection? Is it quite an abstract concept for me? Yeah, I think it is quite abstract, given that we are currently living in the flesh. Um, and so I think partly it is an invisible reality that is hard to have a physical experience of in this world right now. But I don't think that it's impossible. I, one comes to mind in particular, um, and it's more of a, um, I think it was God reminding me of that invisible reality. Uh, it was the first time I'd visited Amity's grave since she passed away. And it had kind of floored me, and I was praying and just angry at God and frustrated with God. But I noticed that the plants that the Rogers had put around the grave were just starting to bud. And I kind of looked over and there was just this tiny little purple beautiful flower starting to bloom. And all I could think was, even in the amongst of death, even in the amongst of the most horrific tragedy, there is this beautiful picture of a life. And I was so taken by a peace that that true, is true for me, that that is true for any Christian, that in the wake of death, real life is there and that through death there's a resurrection beyond that. And so I think it is a hard reality to experience now and it can be quite abstract. But I think in amongst grief, we often are given the peace of God and real grace of him to experience what it will be like beyond death to be resurrected with him. Um, and so I hope, hopefully that's helpful, but um, it is incredibly abstract for us now, I think, yeah. Um. Yes, I'm not 100% what I'm about to say answers the question. Obviously, I'm not sure who asked the question. But um, my mum passed away around four years ago from a terrible lung disease that, you know, just she wasn't from her own um, misdoings. It just was one of those things that, she, uh, that fell upon her. And it was quite a, a slow and agonising way to pass away. And knowing that she was going to pass away and knowing that she was going to go to a particular um, palliative care hospital used to really trouble me because I knew I'd be driving past that place regularly um, to continue visiting my dad. 
being with mum in her last hours ended up being one of the most privileged moments of my life. Um, and you know, mum was a Christian, and, and um, I believe now she is with God. But um, so, so I look at the joy that I could, I can now still um, draw upon in those last hours of mum's life, knowing that she was um, saved and, and going to be with God. Um, and you know, it's funny going past that hospital. It actually reminds me of a very joyful moment. I know that sounds really odd and really um, strange, but. Um, it really was a real privilege to be there and to see someone in their, in their last moments. Yeah. Um, after those two very profound um, experiences of God's resurrection power, this is going to sound a little less profound. Uh, and yet the power of the resurrection is actually... We experience that through the work of the Spirit. God's power in our life is in fact the working of the Holy Spirit. And so those very small little steps of transformation where we grow in our Christian faith, where our character is honed, where our understanding of who God is, those tiny little things that are almost a daily occurrence are also nevertheless the same power at work to bring transformation to our lives. So, for example, um, uh, my, my own experience of growing in godliness has been kind of slow um, and painful at times, and yet to recognise, wow, you know, after you know, 30-something years, um, God has actually changed my character just that bit, just that bit where I'm able to trust in him uh, for, for my significance and my security so much more than I used to when I just needed to grasp that for myself. So even in the small things of life, we see that resurrection power changing us in the most beautiful ways.